Hi everyone, I'm Patrick Johnson. And I'm Chante Westmoreland. And this is Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? This week on Do You Even Have a Tech Degree, we sit down with Professor Chris Hufnagel, an adjunct professor of law here at Berkeley Law School. Professor Hufnagel is a fascinating guy. He has expertise in computer crime law, internet law, information privacy law, and we really focus on that last piece, consumer privacy. What's going on in the world, how to protect ourselves, what might change now with a new administration, our conversation um, it gets really interesting, and I found it personally very helpful as somebody that is really concerned about what I'm putting out into the Internet and who is seeing it and uh, what they might be doing with that information. So without further ado, I give to you Chris Hufnagel. All right. So thank you so much for coming. If you can um, introduce yourself and just give us a little bit about your background and what you do at Berkeley. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Chris Hufnagel, and I'm an adjunct professor. I have appointments both in the School of Information and in the law school. I've long worked on how technology is regulated by the law. Um, and so that's been issues such as privacy, freedom of information, and others such as how digital rights management affects consumers. Awesome. So you have a video currently on the uh, Berkeley Center for Law and Technology website that talks a lot about technology and consumer privacy. I was hoping you could kind of talk a little bit about that narrow issue and sort of your, your ideas and what inspired you to make that video. Sure. People often talk about privacy as an issue where one makes choices in the marketplace, but what my research has been about is how engineers and people who design technologies make decisions for you mm -hmm. um, in such ways that can undermine your privacy in, way, uh, in subtle ways, mm -hmm. um, in ways that you can't detect. Mm -hmm. So my team did the original flash cookies study where we showed that uh, um, advertisers had started using flash to track users uniquely and durably across sites. We also did the eTag research, which is an, another method of tracking people uniquely uh, through how uh, browser caches can identify um, a consumer. So what we've shown over the years is that internet tracking is redundant, uh, but also subtle in such a way that people can't notice it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has led to a whole series of law review articles and, and actually litigation about uh, how uh, advertisers and others can keep tabs on users. Interesting. So in the video, you said that um, technology could displace law. Can you explain what that means? Sure. I think we're beginning to see this more and more, uh, starting with yeah, innovations such as uh, binding arbitration clauses. Mm -hmm. So if you enter a service and has you use a service and it has a binding arbitration clause, that's strike one against legal remedy. Strike number two is it's a free service mm -hmm. and many courts won't recognize you as a consumer if you are not paying uh, for the service. And then strike number three is even if the service does something aggressive or something harmful to you, many uh, courts will not see that as an Article Three harm. And so 
my point has been that our legal remedies for consumer protection have begun to dwindle mm -hmm. as contract, as digital rights management, and as access to the courts uh, have been uh, cut off. Mm -hmm. So we're increasingly in a situation where you have no remedy against companies that literally have all your data. There was an example in today's newspaper where Google had shut off the uh, Google accounts for uh, people who had kind of scammed Google by ordering a phone that for someone else. They essentially were, they were buying phones in bulk to resell these phones. It's not clear to me how Google detected this fraud, and it clearly violated Google's rules, but Google's response was to shut off these individuals' access to their whole Google suite of services. And so you just might imagine how that all of a sudden you're locked out of your email, you're locked out of your contacts. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, those types of uh, remedies are ones that we can continue to experience in a digital world. Mm -hmm. So you know, the, a, a, the remedy 10 years ago would be to get a cease and desist letter from Google saying, stop buying our phones and reselling them. Mm -hmm. Today it is, we can unplug you. Right. And uh, we have to think about that more seriously. Because it seems like it's, Google of course has this conglomerate of different services that a user has access to. And it seems a little, it's interesting that they can shut off the whole other suite of services if a user is misusing only one service. And as you pointed out, that could definitely have a large effect on someone's personal life or yeah, the good news is, is that these users were reinstated pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But it, it shows us a lesson that as we tether more of our life to digital services, we become dependent upon them. Mm -hmm. And if we're not paying for them, um, uh, we have few remedies. Um, and more of us are going are gonna to find ourselves in a world where uh, we are locked into services and switching costs, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, uh, make it possible to have uh, real alternatives. So let's back it up just a little bit. Whenever we say, um, or whenever you say privacy consumer information, what, what exactly are you referring to when you say that? I will never answer your question because inherently <laughs> you're asking me what privacy is, and, and I can't do that as someone who teaches about privacy. I always have to say, well, different people say different things. Right. And much of the law is based around the idea of privacy control. And this is very well defined by Berkeley's Professor Schwartz, who wrote the lead article on this idea that much of privacy law simply tries to put the user into some type of control with respect to information about themselves. Okay. Now, what's happened um, is that it's become less and less realistic as information can be obtained by many, many more parties that you have no relationship with. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any um, uh, privity with these entities, and it's difficult to argue that you should have a right of control with respect to these parties. Mm -hmm. So the proliferation of information, the proliferation of third parties has made pr privacy control more and more difficult. And so the current trend is that many regulators are, are, are trying to move to um, a scheme where uses of personal information are policed. Mm -hmm. So perhaps um, a company could collect information about you, but if they wanted to use it to hire you, to fire you, to offer you an apartment or not, perhaps that wouldn't be allowed. Mm -hmm. But they could use it for, let's say, marketing mm -hmm. or for cybersecurity information sharing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we have these tensions, um, um, global tensions, about how to define privacy and how you define it starts you down a path of what your rights look like. 
Okay, so would you say that the issue is the actions that these companies are taking of gathering this type of information? Or would you say that it is more the omission, and by that I mean them not telling consumers that they're collecting this information? In the United States, we have, um, I can't answer this question directly, so I'm not trying to evade you. No, no, that's fine. Um, the United States has a sectoral privacy model, so we have many different privacy rules mm -hmm. and all sorts of gaps between mm -hmm. the rules. Okay. And we're increasingly in tension with Europe, mm -hmm. which has omnibus privacy protection, regulates all data collection and data use, and even has uh, provisions where certain data users have to register. Mm -hmm. So if you want to use personal information of so-and-so, you actually have to go tell a regulator that you're going to do that. Right. We don't have that in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so there are many firms that, can, that in the sense of omission can collect information about you, process it, make decisions, and you never learn about them. Mm -hmm. um, and you have no way of learning about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the strange facts about the United States is that our Federal Trade Commission does not even know how many credit reporting agencies there are. Because wow. there's no requirement for them to register right. or to even announce what they're doing. Right. Um, so we're increasingly in tension with the Europeans who are saying that if, if we're going to send Europeans' data to America, mm -hmm. it needs to have a, a wrapper of protections around it mm -hmm. that are similar to Europeans. And that would mean you have to think about why you're collecting data, you have to tell people you're collecting data, mm -hmm. and so on. And so what do you think the pros and cons are of the two separate systems? That, too, is in flux. Um, for decades now, we've existed under something called the directive, the privacy directive in, in Europe. Um, and that is being formalized into a regulation. It's a kind of confusing uh, terminology, but what that means is, is that it will become a kind of um, it will, it will become directly enforceable law in all 28 European Union member states. And when you sit down and you look at that regulation, you'll see that there's a lot of substantive and procedural privacy protections in it. That could be game-changing. Mm -hmm. So for instance, one of the substantive protections is that companies have to exercise proportionality mm -hmm. in how much data they collect. So the kind of Google model of, we're just gonna collect everything, mm -hmm. and someday we're gonna figure out what it does, mm -hmm. um, becomes verboten. Um, you have to have things like privacy by default, privacy by design. That means that many of the assumptions we operate in in the United States, where companies can repurpose data mm -hmm. for marketing or the like, might become reversed in Europe. And so there's a big conversation now about what type of innovation does that limit on information collection cause on one hand. We could also think about all the different liberties it creates when that information isn't out there right. and it can't be used against you. Right. And this is the, uh, one of the big conflicts that is, uh, exists between US and Europe. So what types of, as a average consumer, what types of concerns should I have about my information being out there. Let's say, um, just to kind of narrow it down or, you know, put a fine point on it, let's say I'm constantly sending Snapchats and I have my geolocation turned on on Snapchat. Why is that problematic if I personally, I'm fine with people knowing where I am because I want to use all the cool filters that exist. Why, why is that problematic? 
That's a great question, and I think it depends a lot on the subjective um, experiences and, um, frankly, power of mm-hmm. the person who answers the question. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think in Washington and amongst many policymakers, mm-hmm. too many of the people who answer that question look like me. Mm-hmm. They're people who are older, who have secure jobs mm-hmm. um, in secure place in society. And one of the points of privacy is to create kind of breathing room mm-hmm. so that if you aren't fully secure in society or you don't know what your identity is mm-hmm. um, or you have uh, some other, it, it's not exactly vulnerability, but you have less breathing room mm-hmm. for, um, uh, for your life. Um, and, and so um, one, one way to think about your question is what is the audience of your snaps? And we have an idea that the audience for my snaps are my family and my friends. Mm -hmm. Well, the internet has no audience. It has instead every audience. Mm -hmm. And so some of those audiences out there are law enforcement, intelligence agencies, um, people who might want to do you harm, Mm -hmm. people who are mentally ill and who look at your snap and say, oh, she's in love with me. I think I'm going to look up her geolocation. Mm-hmm. And, and so this problem of every audience is not understood when you press send. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's one reason why you'd want privacy. And I don't mean to ground it in being afraid, mm-hmm. but, but the problem is, is we live in a world where people have adverse interests to you. Right. And they use these systems. I promise you, they use these systems to engage in mass surveillance of people. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you don't have a reason to necessarily be concerned until you do have a reason to be concerned. And I think this election um, points that out. And not to be partisan, because I think um, this would be a different conversation if, uh, let's say, Ted Cruz had won or, um, or some other Republican. But when you, um, when you elect someone who has a history of vindictiveness mm-hmm. um, and um, a lack of tolerance for dissent... All of a sudden, you have to start thinking whether your small L liberal values still apply. Mm-hmm. And so maybe your snaps begin to matter if you're in an interracial relationship mm-hmm. in a country where hate crimes are increasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so these are the, um, I, I think, uh, uh, Donald Trump being elected president mm-hmm. is going to be one of the best things for privacy ever. Because uh, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world that have kind of coaxed us into sharing information have done it under the assumption that there's no, there's never going to be a real harm mm-hmm. because fundamentally our government is is small L liberal mm-hmm. and they're not going to persecute you for the silly things you do. Right. Not so sure anymore, huh? Mm-hmm. Not so sure. So I, I just want to back up a bit because you mentioned that the audience that we might be worried about is the internet as a whole. If I'm the average consumer, I only send snaps to my friends. I have general privacy um, limitations on my Facebook. I don't do random Twitter posts. How at risk am I really that those, um, peop- those audiences we might not like will actually be able to see my stuff? Is it, is it as simple as turning your Facebook privacy to you know, not public? So that's a great question as well. And so uh, there's a couple dependencies there. So you're depending on the, um, 
discretion of your friends and family, which is probably pretty good thing to rely on. You're also depending on uh, the security and privacy settings of the intermediary. And that's where there's been problems. And, um, you know, what, what I, it, it's not just uh, does the, do the Facebooks or the like have adequate security, um, it's whether they have incentives that, that line up with yours. And, and so frequently in these free business models, the incentives are in conflict. Um, so we've seen a lot of different um, um, internet services over the years change their promises to consumers uh, because they need to make profiles more public in order to make them more pliable for advertising. This happened with Facebook itself. I think the other kind of larger regulatory problem is that we don't yet agree as a society about what security harms are, remi are remediable at law. There's currently a challenge in the 11th Circuit where a company put its patient file, so this is a medical lab company, mm -hmm. put its patient file onto LimeWire. Now, there's no proof that anyone really downloaded this file, mm -hmm. um, yet their patient records were out um, on this file sharing system. They were downloadable, even if they weren't actually downloaded. Yeah, they were vulnerable in this way. A security company downloaded it. Mm -hmm. uh, who knows if others did. Um, but the 11th Circuit in a preliminary motion has said, we're not sure that that is enough mm -hmm. to mean that those consumers were harmed. And what is your take on how quickly the law is able to adjust to these uh, various changes in technology? So this is a perennial problem of whether regulation is in step with uh, technology. And it's a, consistently what the problem has been is that, the, is that government regulators aren't in step enough. Mm -hmm. But I think that's changed, um, particularly during the President Obama administration. Um, officials in many different agencies started hiring privacy technologists mm -hmm. and other just technologists to advise on what was technically possible with in regulation? And where was the trickiness? You know, when are companies showing up and saying, oh, we can't possibly do that. It's technically impossible. Mm -hmm. Well, then the Federal Communications Commission or the FTC could turn to their in-house computer scientists and say, are they, are they lying? Mm -hmm. And um, a whole bunch of people served in this role. John Piha, um, one of our former students here at Berkeley, Ashkan uh, Sultani, was mm -hmm. the FTC's uh, uh, privacy um, um, expert. So interestingly, the people who embedded in these agencies were top people, mm -hmm. professors at Carnegie Mellon, people who'd come out of Berkeley, um, um, and so on. And it really punched up the sophistication of this administration. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we saw the FCC um, um, regulation under 222. And I think it's also the reason why we saw lots of cutting edge enforcement at the Federal Trade Commission. Mm -hmm. So for instance, among the things the FTC enforced against were companies that were passively monitoring consumers' smartphones mm -hmm. through the Wi-Fi signals and the like to enumerate them mm -hmm. and to figure out where they were in physical stores. Like the FTC of 10 years ago would not have figured that out. Right. Um, the current thing that they're saber-rattling about are libraries of ultrasonic 
um, emissions that can come out of your phone. Um, and the idea is that if you're in the presence of a television or the radio, they could um, uh, be transmitting these signals that your phone would pick up, and then they'd know where you are. Or they'd know that you heard an ad for so-and-so. Oh, wow. So this is inside ball. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This isn't, you know, you know, I read, you know, I read in the USA Today that so-and-so happened. These are, mm -hmm. this is actually really figuring out how things work. Right. And um, so the sophistication of the agencies have uh, been punched up. So, the, so it, it, this is an enduring problem, um, uh, but the regulators are way more sophisticated than they were 10 years ago. And in, even when you look at like the French, like if you look at the Canille, mm -hmm. their computer scientists are top rate. And it would be difficult to pull pull one over on them. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like um, this might all, this cutting edge FTC might face a few setbacks in the coming months. So as the average consumer, um, certainly there are a lot of risks that we can't protect against. But what, for anyone listening to this, would you say are some easy steps that we could do just to kind of protect ourselves and our privacy um, while we're online and on our phones? So um, th there are close to costless basic steps one can take. Mm -hmm. um, the, the easiest, I think, um, the one that's most durable and that breaks the fewest things is to use some type of filtering technology on your browser. So many people are using um, a plugin such as uBlock or AdBlock Plus. Mm -hmm. um, now, those are thought as advertising blockers, but in fact, in the process of blocking advertising, they block a lot of tracking that is somehow related to, to advertising. That's one of the, 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 the easiest steps to take. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is in, is in text messaging. Um, it does make sense to move to a text message client that has end-to-end -end encryption. And so on the iPhone, in the uh, iOS environment, that's iMessage. Mm -hmm. um, in, in other environments, you can use Signal, uh, which is also free and, and developed by um, um, uh, reliable people. Mm -hmm. And so those tools give you end-to-end -end encryption, which makes it very difficult for the AT&Ts of the world or even governments to um, unmask study what you're saying. Now, there's nothing that can be done, however, when the government decides that you as an individual um, are interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that there, are, there are steps people can take to avoid mass surveillance, and you might say, well, I think that's reasonable because I believe in a liberal democracy and mass surveillance shouldn't happen. But at the end of the day, when, when the government really focuses on individuals, mm -hmm. they end up breaking the encryption. They end up finding ways into those devices. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess as a follow-up to that question, what you mentioned text messaging, so like my communication with other people and maybe my use on the internet, are there any other ways in which I'm vulnerable? Like when I'm, I don't know, the places that I shop, if I have a, um, like a Safeway card, for example, or if I use the same credit card every single time I go to Target, are those way, are there other things that I can do in that kind of way to protect my consumer information? Yeah, in, in fact, there's a lot of things that can happen offline uh, that can punch up your privacy. One of the most important is to regularly check your credit reports, mm -hmm. and you can do that free by going to annualcreditreport.com. Mm -hmm. uh, you can download one of your credit reports, and you can see uh, how businesses see you and correct errors. So that's a very actually an important uh, um, um, step mm -hmm. uh, to take. There's all sorts of things one can do in the physical world to have more privacy in commerce. 
Um, among them are using um, an American Express card. Like if you're going to use a credit card, American Express has the best privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are other very subtle things. For instance, when you get a credit card, you can say what you want your name to be on it. Mm-hmm. And if you use your initials, bizarrely enough, uh, you will have more privacy um, because it's harder for the retailer to read your true name off the card. Right. Um, so there are bizarre things like um, uh, like that out there. Holders of cell phones have more privacy in a way than landlines because landline records always get sold to data brokers, whereas your cell phone number and identity might not be known. But on the other hand, you have the problems of um, there's the problems of uh, location tracking. The whole point of loyalty cards, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. is to reverse your identity. Mm-hmm. That is the point. Mm-hmm. That um, so the reason why loyalty cards came around is that retailers. Um, can't really identify you, even when you use a credit card. And it's because your name is not unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, even my name is not unique in America. Um, so so loyalty cards are one of those things where you have to kind of make a decision about how you're going to use them. Do I want to save the 50 cents on the coffee creamer or do I want to protect my information? Got it. Okay. <laughs> cool. The last question that we usually like to ask people is if you can kind of give your definition of what you think technology law is. Oh, that's... I'd have to give that some thought. Um, Feel free, so, and we can edit out the gap if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> My conception of technology is very broad. Mm-hmm. And so when I got into the field, people would ask me, well, what is your favorite technology? And they're expecting you to say, well, my, my iPhone or, my, or, or the like. Mm-hmm. But, but I always say I respond with indoor plumbing. In fact, I would keep my indoor plumbing before I would take my mobile phone. And, and, but with a lot of what my work has been about is, the, is a historical approaches to consumer protection and how we've dealt with new technologies through the century. And I think there's a lot of lessons from that. We started... Um, um, we started with common law consumer protection approaches that didn't work so well. Mm-hmm. And as our society becomes more complex and as these products become more complex, I think we're, we, we are moving to a world that has a regulatory regime that looks more like supervision mm-hmm. than even regulation. And that'll do it for this episode of Do You Even Have a Tech Degree? On behalf of the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, and the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, I want to thank Professor Hufnagel. That was an awesome discussion. I really learned a lot about protecting myself and about some of the threats that are facing uh, us as consumers and those of us that care about privacy. If you want to hear more from Chris Hufnagel, you can read his book, Federal Trade Commission, Privacy Law and Policy. You can also check him out on Twitter, at Hufnagel. That's H-O-O-F. N-A-G-L-E at Hoofnoggle. Thanks so much. On behalf of Shante Westmoreland and myself, Patrick Johnson, wishing you a great day. Take care.